3: National Signing Day is not a thing anymore. But for all of you out there that feel like Christmas morning arrives every single year with the college football recruiting classes, we now have an early signing day and we have a later signing period. But this is when like 80% of the top players in the nation are going to sign. And the storyline coming out of Wednesday's signing day is... The rich, well, they got a lot richer. I mean, it was an incredible haul of talent if you look at the recruiting class rankings. And by the way, we're going to talk with Dan Wetzel in the program today uh, because he, I thought, broke it down pretty well for rivals. The impact and importance of signing top recruiting classes is growing. And one of the things that he wrote in his uh, in his column, which I thought was really entertaining, at uh, yahoo sports is he believes the playoff has created even more of an incentive for players to go and to sign uh, with the elite level schools out there so if you go look for instance the playoff schools obviously over time have been who clemson alabama ohio state lsu georgia boom that's basically your top five in the college football rankings Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, LSU, Georgia—roughly your top five. Texas A&M with a solid day as Jimbo Fisher is trying to build up his overall talent. Auburn seems to recruit pretty well. Florida, not a surprise—the Southern schools doing well. Uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Big Twelve brands do well. Uh, then you got a couple of the second tier, I would say, uh, after Ohio State, top level recruiters. Big Ten with Michigan and Penn State. Notre Dame has done, I think, surprisingly well under Brian Kelly in recruiting in general. And then Washington and Oregon doing decent. Tennessee, South Carolina, uh, as you kind of run through the list. Miami, a lot of the usual suspects in you know the top 20-ish uh, in uh, the recruiting rankings. Here's one that is going to blow your mind. And here's one that I think is just ominous to the nth degree. And it's not surprising when you look at the overall breakdown. But, man, USC with one of the worst recruiting classes that they have ever had, maybe the worst recruiting class that they have ever had, when you're bracketed by Bowling Green and by Louisiana during much of the day, and Louisiana Tech and Troy and SMU are the schools that you are competing with, that ain't a good sign at all. Uh, And in fact, Matt Leinert, who is maybe the most famous former Trojan alum out there right now, Matt Leinert, Marcus Allen, Reggie Bush, uh, he said, uh, he tweeted this out during the day yesterday, Oregon is the new USC in recruiting on the West Coast. Back in my day, no one dared to recruit Southern California. Now it's open season, and Oregon is hunting, and the Ducks have had and did have a great signing day. Mario Cristobal doing really well there, uh, and the storyline of SC, and then Leinert went on to tag uh, several other people associated with USC, including the school president and and the AD who had stuck behind Clay Helton. The reason why USC did such a poor job recruiting was in the first place, nobody wanted to commit to SC because they didn't know what the long-range future of Clay Helton was going to be. And the second part of that, and this is also pretty signature part of of the overall decision-making, is they hung Clay Helton out to dry. And then when they finally said, hey, by the way, we're committed to you, they waited so long to do it that it didn't allow him to have any kind of recruiting momentum at all. So as you break down the college football universe, USC's collapse on the West Coast is not just a big deal for the Trojans. It's a big deal for the Pac-12 in general. Because really, and I know people can argue, oh, Oregon has risen up, oh, Washington has been recruiting better, but most people nationwide think of the Pac-12 as a USC conference. And if USC is good, even if the rest of the Pac-12 isn't very good, the West Coast feels like it matters in the college football playoff. And this is why I have been teeing off, if you follow my social media feeds, uh, feeds at Clay Travis is my Twitter account, on this idea from uh, the commissioner of the Pac-12, Larry Scott. He was asked recently, hey, what do you think about the idea of expanding the playoff to eight teams? His immediate answer should be, boom. I'm all in for it. If he had any kind of intelligence at all, the Pac-12 of all of the conferences and the Big 12 should be aggressively in favor of playoff expansion. Why is that? Because that makes your conference nationally relevant. If SC is down, your conference is still nationally relevant if you know that you are guaranteed a spot in the college football playoff. You are still relevant. But if you don't have a spot in the college football playoff, and so far the Pac-12 has won one game, they don't have a team in the Pac-12 in the playoff again this year. The only game they won was year one. Marcus Mariota and the Ducks beat Florida State and Jameis Winston. And the only other team that's made it out of the Pac-12 is Washington, and they got run by Alabama in a game that was never that close. If you want your conference to be nationally relevant, you need to have a team getting in the playoff. And honestly, Utah this year helped the Pac-12 title game rankings because people watched Utah play against Oregon with the idea being, hey, I want to see whether Utah is good enough to make the playoff. Now, Oregon went out and whipped them, which is why one of the great storylines you could just follow in general is, what's the worst thing that could happen for the Pac-12? Okay, I'm going to bet in favor of that because it seems to happen over and over and over again that the Pac-12 has bad things happen. But Larry Scott, I believe, has an easy goal here, and it should be for the college football playoff to expand. And that would help USC recruiting. That would help Oregon recruiting. It would help Washington recruiting, because all these coaches would be able to go into the living room of recruits and say, hey, you don't have to leave here, and that's what's happening a lot. A lot of the top players are leaving the West Coast and going East to better football schools because you have a chance to make the college football playoff here just as easily as you do in another place, maybe even an easier spot because it arguably is easier to win the Pac-12 than it is to say win the SEC or the Big Ten. And so, this is a no-brainer. Instead, Larry Scott has fallen victim to this ridiculous idea of needing to buy, needing to buy in to the Rose Bowl and protecting the Rose Bowl instead of thinking about expanding the playoff. He said, yeah, you know, I, I, the challenge about expanding the playoff is, well, we want to preserve our relationship with the Rose Bowl. And that was such a record-scratch moment for me because I'm thinking, why in the world does the Pac-12 care about the Rose Bowl? The Rose Bowl isn't owned by the Pac-12. The Pac-12 doesn't make some god-awful, uh, obscene amount of money from the Rose Bowl. Can you imagine the NFL being like, hey, we got to make sure that our playoffs make this random neutral site venue happy? God, no. The pathway forward for college football is eight teams, and it's the top four seeds getting to host home playoff games in the quarterfinals on their campus. And this conference that needs it more than any other is the Pac-12. Instead of putting up roadblocks to the expansion of the playoff Larry Scott ought to be leading the charge, alongside, by the way, the Big 12. Because the Big 12 has still got a fear down the line that maybe Texas or Oklahoma decide to leave that conference. And if that were to happen, the Big 12 would collapse. Well, how do you keep Texas or Oklahoma from ever leaving the Big 12? Well, you give them an automatic playoff. So that in and of itself should be a relatively easy thing to be in favor of. Instead, they continue to blow it. And USC, to me is emblematic of the struggles of the Pac-12, USC on National Signing Day, being unable to put together a good recruiting class just means it's going to be that much harder for the Pac-12 to be relevant on a national stage because they can't quite figure out how to make themselves relevant. And so as you sort of follow this storyline, that is a big one. The other one is that the Pac-12 just can't get out of its own way. But that's the storyline that to me jumped out the most. Uh, from signing day was USC's collapse and the rise of the dominance of the teams that are in the playoff race in terms of their ability to grab five-star talent and high-end four-star talent. Now, a couple of other things that I think are are significant here, and uh, and and I and I think this is worth contemplating. There is this idea. Among some segments of the population out there, and some of you are tweeting me already, nobody cares about signing day. Uh, Teams with two and three stars do just as well. Like, no, you're wrong. I have done the research, and the teams that consistently finish in the top 10 are the teams that win the championship. In fact, you need to be in the top 10 recruiting class rankings at least three of the four years prior to you winning a national championship. What I always say is I don't get worked up about individual recruits. Because by and large, it's hard to forecast what 17 and 18-year-old is going to be a stud by the time he's 20 or 21. But in general, if your class is filled with better caliber players, meaning more four- and five-star players, your class is going to outperform. There's going to be guys who do well. There's going to be guys who do poorly. But in general, I want it's like investing. I want as many blue-chip companies in my uh, investment portfolio as I can. Four- and five-star players are blue chips, right? You don't know necessarily, just like with a stock, which one is going to outperform. You don't want all your eggs in one basket. These are all sort of investment cliches, and they apply in the same fashion to college football recruiting or college basketball recruiting, or frankly, if it were able to be done, it's why teams like to stockpile first-round picks because every first-round pick you make – in the NFL or the NBA, is not going to pan out. and You want as many top draft picks as you can. And in general, unless you're totally a, a, a broken organization, over time, the teams that draft the best are going to win the most. And in general, the teams that draft... Basically, the best recruits bring them in every year are going to be more successful. And so I get frustrated when I see people try to argue otherwise. Oh, this is overrated. This isn't as significant of an aspect as you should possibly imagine. No, the teams that are going to be contending for the national championship are the teams that finish at the very top of the uh, of the food chain here. And so again, and I like to use, by the way, the 24-7 composite recruiting index because I think it sums up things better than others. Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, LSU, Georgia, Texas A&M, Auburn, Florida, Oklahoma, and Texas. Those are, in general, the teams that will be contending the most for championships down the line based on the overall talent that they got. Now, Michigan, Penn State, Notre Dame, Washington, Oregon, Tennessee, all these schools did fine. That's roughly your top 16 right now in the recruiting class rankings, and again, there's still more guys to be signed in February, so these things can continue to adjust on the fly, and they do constantly, but it's certainly worth paying attention to in general to try to have a rough approximation of how these guys are going uh, to shake out in uh, the weeks and the months ahead, but more importantly,
0: in the years ahead.
3: Appreciate you spending your Thursday morning with us. We've been talking a lot about recruiting and uh, the universe of the uh, early signing day. Dan Wetzel is scheduled to join us in the next segment. Going to have a, a good conversation with Dan, uh, writing about how the rich are getting richer when it comes to the uh, the college football recruiting market. But I want to pivot here for a minute to talk about the Browns and the disaster that the Cleveland Browns are right now with all of the chaos unfolding. Now, it's unfortunate because there was so much optimism coming into the season for the Browns and almost immediately right out of the gate. They got whipped at home by the Tennessee Titans and all those Browns Super Bowl future tickets, which everybody was so en- enticed by, looked ridiculous. The fact that the Browns were favored to win the AFC North looked completely ridiculous, but the chaos that has descended on the Browns is intriguing to follow, if for no other reason than oh so utterly predictable what was going to happen when Odell Beckham Jr. came to the Browns. Now, Odell came out today and said, effectively, Uh, or I guess it was yesterday that Odell talked, and he said, you know, uh, I don't want to be traded anywhere. I plan to be back here next year, whatever the usual rigmarole is. Uh, But to me, one of the fascinating questions that's hanging out there is, what do you do with Odell Beckham Jr. going forward if you are the Cleveland Browns? Uh, There's a lot of talk about whether or not you need to revamp the entire organization. Is Freddie Kitchens the right answer? John Dorsey at GM. But the problem with the Browns really begins with the very top. And you heard us hinting about this a little bit yesterday when Jeff Schwartz was my guest. The owner of the Cleveland Browns, a guy named Jimmy Haslam. And Jimmy Haslam is a uh, is plugged in in the state of Tennessee, billionaire, uh, thanks to Pilot, uh, his uh, his truck stop company. And when you really look at the Browns, it's a dysfunctional organization from the top down. We talk a lot about Jerry Jones and the control and power that he has with the Dallas Cowboys. We certainly talk a lot as well about Dan Snyder and the control and power he has uh, with his organization. But really, we don't talk as much about Jimmy Haslam and the impact that he has had at the top of the Browns. And this is a big part of the reason why Tennessee fans revolted against the idea of Greg Schiano being hired because Jimmy Haslam, to put it frank, has not made really good management decisions when it comes to his teams. And so the, uh, the idea that Odell Beckham Jr. was going to arrive in Cleveland and be a good soldier and not create a stir was totally ridiculous on its face. It made no sense at all. And so as you break it down, really what we've seen is exactly what you would have forecast was likely to happen when the Cleveland Browns brought in Odell Beckham Jr. So I think the question going forward is what do the Browns do? Uh, Presuming they stay committed to Freddie Kitchens and John Dorsey, that means you're also staying committed to Baker Mayfield. And even though Baker Mayfield has been mediocre to bad, at best – this season. I don't think you can make any moves with Baker Mayfield. And so as a result, that means to me that you have to stick with Baker Mayfield and all the apparatus that's surrounding him. But I also think you have to think at least a little bit about the idea of moving Odell Beckham Jr. And then the question becomes, okay, what teams potentially would be interested in Odell and who would be interested in getting him at a price that's somewhat reasonable? And the only teams I can really think of that would make sense for Odell Beckham Jr. next year are teams that are already really good and think, let's say, for instance, that Tom Brady came back for another year in New England. We don't know if he's going to come back at the age of 43 and play another year, but if he did, the New England wide receiver core is a mess. If you knew that you only had Brady for one more year or maybe two more years, could it make sense for New England to give up a first-round pick and get Odell Beckham Jr. in New England? Yeah, I think it could make sense. What about down in New Orleans? If you know that you've only got a couple more years with Drew Brees, could it make sense to give up a first-round pick for Odell Beckham Jr. and pair him with Michael Thomas? Yeah, I think that could make sense. Does it make long-range sense for the Cleveland Browns to keep Odell Beckham Jr. in Cleveland? I don't think it does. Because I think the problem with Odell has been he has created dissension for Jarvis Landry, who so far had been a pretty good soldier when you think about the way that he had performed in Cleveland. And when he gets his old college running mate back, Odell brings drama everywhere. And I don't know, if you look at his production this year, which has just fallen off the face of the earth, I'm not sure how much of a difference he's going to make in general. This is one of those great stats that's out there. Every team that has ever won the NFL, the wide receiver has never been the best player on the team. Now, the wide receiver gets a lot of talent. People inevitably, when I talk about this, they say, what about Jerry Rice? I think Joe Montana was more important than Jerry Rice. So I don't think that the best player on the San Francisco 49ers during their Super Bowl runs was Jerry Rice. It was Joe Montana. And I don't think there's ever been a scenario where the best player on a football team that won a Super Bowl was the wide receiver. So wide receivers get a lot of attention because they're out on islands by themselves and they make plays, and the plays that they make are very, look at me, hey, uh, I'm incredible. And you don't see all of the other players that are involved in in allowing that play to be made in the same way. Uh, But I think Odell Beckham Jr. has created consistently drama and dissension everywhere he has been. And so if you have an overly dramatic and overly dissent-filled organization, which I think it's fair to say that the Cleveland Browns are right now, I don't know how in the world you maintain your commitment in any way to Odell Beckham Jr. So I think the Browns, as they move into this offseason, and look, they got a big game against Lamar Jackson. We've been talking some, a little bit, about how wild it is that Baker Mayfield is having the worst season of any starting quarterback in the NFL, while simultaneously Lamar Jackson is having the best season, their same second-year quarterbacks, and Baker Mayfield had all the hype. And everything that Lamar Jackson does is basically the anti- Baker Mayfield. And we talked about that to open up the show, how it was an intriguing example of the culture that can be set and how the quarterback in many ways sets the culture of an organization. But I think the culture of the Cleveland Browns organization right now is being set by Jimmy Haslam as the owner. It's not a good culture. And one of the problems has been this idea that they were going to go make a move for Odell Beckham Jr. and then boom, they were going to be a Super Bowl contending team when the reality is they are not going to have a winning season, just like the Browns never have a winning season, and the hype got ahead of by a substantial margin, the reality. And so I think the question you have to answer as you move forward, and I think it's a good one, and I think it's an important one to debate and discuss, is what in the world do you do in Cleveland? And my answer is you got to move Odell Beckham Jr. I think in this offseason, you try to find a team with a veteran quarterback, a Drew Brees, a Tom Brady, that thinks they can handle him in the locker room, and then you make the decision, you know what? We're going to go ahead and move on from this guy, Uh, and it makes good sense to reset, and best you can, the culture of the organization. Let it be known that you're building around Baker Mayfield 100%. Get rid of some of the Diva wide receiver tendencies that have surrounded Odell Beckham Jr. no matter what. Remember, this guy has never won a playoff game in his NFL career and he's been a very productive wide receiver, but it hasn't translated into actual wins when the postseason arrives. Put him on a team that's already really good, may feel like they're one wide receiver away from a Super Bowl, and see whether Drew Brees or Tom Brady, one of these aging veteran quarterbacks that wants one last Super Bowl run, whether they could handle him, and maybe those
0: teams would be willing to give up a first-round pick for him. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Appreciate all
3: of you hanging out with us here on OutKick. We are rolling on the Thursday edition of the show. Uh, old friend of the program, regular guest Dan Wetzel, best uh, national sports columnist in America, in my always humble opinion, at Dan Wetzel on Twitter. The day after National Signing Day, Dan, and you wrote about kind of the impact of Signing Day. we got a bunch of different things that I think are interesting to get into. I still love National Signing Day. I talked about it on the program already. Do you still enjoy it?
1: absolutely love it it's always fun um i love that all of a sudden the whole country turns its attention to like some county high school in mississippi yes. yes and then we're live on espn that you know places that never there was one yesterday a kid from lakeland florida was making his announcement and uh he's, he's gonna pick between uh i think it was like tennessee and someone else in oklahoma and this big drama and right behind him his dad is sitting there and he's got his jacket on and it can see the oklahoma on it so yeah yeah. So I think he's going to go to Oklahoma. You know, he <laughs> call the thing is Oklahoma. So it's like just the failures, the the puppy dogs they bring out the the whole thing. It's absurd. It's totally absurd. Every coach got a great class. Everyone got who they wanted. Uh, you know, it, it it's 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 a fun day. It is what it is. Um it it means a lot and it doesn't mean a lot, but I don't know how you can't really enjoy it. You really got to like lighten up if you just are angry that that someone's doing a hat Hat choices or stupid things when they're seventeen years old. Like hey, good for them. Whatever.
3: Uh, and and for people out there who may not uh, be huge college football fans, this is a little bit different now. Over the past several years, we've had an early and a late signing period. This used to always happen in February. Now it happens. Uh, there's an early period, and I, and I think uh, around eighty percent of the top players are making their decisions now. Uh, And uh, and then they're you know twenty percent of kids will still wait and decide to to sign in February. So it's a little bit bifurcated compared to maybe what it has been in the past. But it's still again Christmas morning for many college football fans. And you uh, and I have talked about this quite a bit. One thing that there's always like this uh, this idea of. Oh, you know what? Like the two and three stars are just as good as the four and five stars. And, and if you look at the data, that's nowhere near true. In fact, the better the class in terms of the rankings, the the more four and five star prospects a team signs, the more likely they are to have tremendous success in the years ahead. So it's, it's an inexact science when it comes to an individual recruit. You know, a five star may or may not pan out because they're 17 and 18 year old kids. But the more four and five stars you get, the better your class overall is going to do. That's pretty consistently the case. Uh, and so the, the, the idea that this recruiting class rankings don't matter is actually fallen by the wayside uh, in, in recent history. But also you found out, and you wrote a column at Yahoo Sports where I thought was really interesting, what you have found is in the playoff era, the teams that make the playoffs are getting even more of the better talent than they were before the playoff.
1: Yeah, they really are. The playoff has has really separated what I think are the truly elite half dozen schools from what I would consider the very, very good. And so, if you look at recruiting, Clemson, Alabama, uh, Georgia does really well. Ohio State, LSU, LSU just started; it's their first playoff appearance, but those schools are recruiting at a much higher level and have been able to separate from what I would say are the very goods. Texas, Notre Dame, Tennessee, you know, some of these are Florida, some of these other schools that still are getting a lot of kids. But if you look, the five-star recruits are going to 22. I think we're, we'll see how it all plays out in recount this morning. Yeah. It was expected to be 22 of 33 of the five. There's 33 five-star recruits, 22 of them signed with just five schools. Uh, Clemson, uh, Georgia, Alabama, LSU, and Ohio State. Obviously, three of those are in the the playoff. Four of them are the only school. There's only been five schools that have ever won a playoff game. Four of them are on that list. Uh, Oregon won a game back in 2014. So, generally, if you are in that playoff, you can just leave behind the rest of your conference. And so it creates a lot of, uh, a lot of issues. And, when you, you know, people again, you said, uh, if you're a two-star, that guy was a two-star, and it became an all-pro... Yeah, Tom Brady was a six-round draft pick, too. Would you rather draft your quarterback in the first round or the sixth round? You want to take that chance? The more five stars you get, the better. There are 33 five-stars a year about that. There's 32 first-round draft picks. So you have to look at it like a first-round pick. And the way these scouting departments work now, the improvement in game film, practice film at high schools, they don't miss as much as they used to. It's not like it used to be. So if you're giving Clemson six first-round draft picks a year and no one else in the ACC gets any first-round draft picks, it's not a fair fight in the ACC. Clemson signed the top seven players, uh, I believe, in the ACC. Again, go look, but about that. The, the 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 ability to go to the playoff has just changed everything and created these half dozen or so, maybe up to eight, uh national programs that can go get kids anywhere they want and then everyone else is sitting behind. And that's why you keep seeing the exact same schools in the playoff every year.
3: And uh, and as they're in the playoffs, and you mentioned like uh, the kind of the Ohio State angle, it's not only how well the school may recruit relative to other national powers, it's how they recruit to uh, compared to the rest of the conference, right? Uh, and again, I don't track every single signee, but to kind of give you a perspective. Ohio State had more top 100 recruits uh, at one point yesterday. I saw this circulating on social media than the rest of the Big Ten did combined. So it's not only like Clemson right now, I would argue, has become a little bit like USC was back in the day in the Pac-12, where it's not only that they're elite, it's that compared to the rest of the conference, they're on like a different universe, and Ohio State of late uh, certainly with Urban Meyer, and it looks like it's going to continue with Ryan Day, has been uh, has been recruiting at a level that most of the rest of the Big Ten just can't match, right? Like if you're Alabama, okay, Georgia and LSU are able right now, Florida a little bit as well, to still end up with some really high-level classes, but Ohio State's almost a different level at the, at the peak than anybody else in the Big Ten.
1: Yeah, again, they're getting uh, three, four, five first-round draft picks a year where the other schools are getting none or maybe one. I think the only other one was Maryland stole or, uh, you know, flipped the kid at the last minute. Uh, when you have that elite talent that changes games, the, the three- and four-star guys are, uh, you know, and, and lower-level four-star guys are kind of kind of even themselves out. And, and then it's about development and scouting, but the five-stars are the five-stars. And so uh, Ohio State has such an advantage over everybody else. Uh, and, and, and I think the way recruiting rankings are actually done is, is it, not individuals, but the team rankings. You always hear, hey, so-and-so finished, you know, I got the ninth-best class in the country. That often sounds a lot better than it is. The gap between five and nine is significant. So you look and say, hey, uh, let's say, for instance, Ohio State's got the fourth-best class and Michigan's got the ninth. That Hey, I see the number-nine team in America beat the number-four team in America all the time. That's pretty much even. Maybe a little better for Ohio State, but not much. No. Not when... Yes, uh, on uh, yeah. Yesterday, Ohio State got uh, seven players ranked ahead of Michigan's top player. Yeah. So if Michigan and Ohio State are lined up have a pick up football game, Ohio State gets the first seven picks, and then Michigan gets the pick.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, what do you think your chances are? Again, just imagine an NFL team getting that many draft picks. Yeah, and then the the competition getting done, so that gap makes Clemson and Ohio State their road to 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 playoffs even easier and easier. And basically, the only thing that's upended Ohio State in the past few years is when they just flaked out and lost to like Purdue and things like you know they did they just they they shot themselves in the foot. And Clemson hasn't had that happen, so it's it's a big. I think it's a problem. I don't. It's not something like you should legislate and be, you know cap or anything. I mean, it's, it should be a free country and it's competition, but. Right now, the rich keep getting richer and richer, and we get these playoffs that are, kind of feel repetitive. And for the whole country, you know, three or four teams every year come from the southeast. And that's not great for a sport that's trying to matter all over America uh, when, when almost everyone comes from the same area of the country. Do you think
3: that this uh, and and this is an intriguing question because certainly there is some uh, some p- progress it seems and some movement on the name, image, and likeness uh, universe. And we're talking to Dan Wetzel at Dan Wetzel on Twitter, Yahoo Sports national columnist. Does name, image, and likeness even in your mind the playing field a bit more, or does it further exacerbate the t- the, the difference between top and bottom in the uh, in the conferences?
1: I think it's going to level it. And I yeah. think that everyone's got this wrong, or a lot of people have this wrong, as they sit there and go, Wait, you can basically pay the players. And and you essentially can, because your fan can say, Look, I, I got a you know, I own a car dealership in Tuscaloosa and I want that linebacker so bad I'll give him a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar a year job to promote my gas you know, my, my car dealership. And that's basically what name, image, and likeness is. You can you can do advertising. Okay. And and so Alabama's just gonna spend so much money on this. That's not, right now, Alabama is already getting all the players. They got a car dealership over in, in, in Oxford, Mississippi, too. They got one in Lexington, Kentucky. They got one in Ames, Iowa. You start evening it out with money. Right now, the two biggest determinations on the, the determinations on where kids go in general is proximity to home, tradition and conference affiliation. OK? And so they're going to go what's, what's already built. Well, there's no way for Iowa State or Boise State to create more tradition or a bigger stadium than Alabama. There's none. But Alabama can't basically bid for all 25 guys the way a Boise State or an Iowa State could come in and bid on a couple guys. Right. So if you're, if you're going to be a quarterback and you can go to Boise, Idaho and be the star – you have ability to make more money in a city of almost one million people where you're the biggest star in an entire state than you could in a lot of, than being the the second quarterback that commits to uh, try to play at Alabama. There's just no way. So I think name image and likeness counter to all the all the cries that, that this is going to unlevel the playing field. The playing field's completely tilted now. I think these smaller schools not just the Boise, but the second-tier schools and major conferences now have a chance. You want to be the 25th best recruit at Ohio State, or you want to be the number one recruit at Purdue? And and that's, the, that's where this thing changes. So I actually think if they ever implement this thing, this will solve this kind of top-heavy problem.
3: It's actually a fascinating thesis, and I, I like it. I, I do think there's a lot of truth to that, because I, I do think you're correct. People look at The big program and they say oh this big program is going to have so much interest but you're right every program has somebody who has a car dealership in that marketplace right and they have the ability to go out and try to get some of these top four and five stars and offer them more opportunity than they would be as the 20th or the 21st top player in let's say an Alabama or Ohio State class I actually think there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. Which, if you're a college sports fan, would mean that if you believe that parity is good for college sports uh, in some way, that this would actually help. Uh, I, I like the thesis there. Speaking of parity in college sports, you and I have been on this for a while, and uh, and and I think that this uh, that this is crazy. That a lot of these conference commissioners are not making the smartest decisions for their conference, and they're not doing so in what seems to be almost a willfully ignorant fashion. Let me give you an example. Larry Scott said recently in a big uh, public forum that he wasn't sure, and he's the commissioner of the Pac-12 for those of you who don't know it. Larry Scott, commissioner of the Pac-12, said he wasn't sure if he supported the idea of expanding to eight in the playoff because of what the impact might be on the Rose Bowl. And I read that and I thought, my God, this is one of the dumbest statements I've ever seen a leader of a conference ever make publicly. And that's saying something because Larry Scott's had a a, a lot of humdingers out there over the years, right? When you saw this quote, the best thing that could possibly happen to the Pac-12 is an expansion of eight to the playoff so that you had a guaranteed spot every year. The idea that you would not be in favor of that. Instead, you'd want to protect the Rose Bowl is crazy. I put up a poll, by the way. I think you saw a lot of other people voted in it around the time that that, that went public. And 82% of people said, this is crazy. Like, the Pac-12 should be focused on the playoff as opposed to the Rose Bowl. Uh, to, the, to, I guess, Larry Scott's credit, 18% of people were focused on uh, the, the Rose Bowl. But this is crazy, isn't it?
1: Uh, yeah, it's and it's again, it's conventional wisdom. That is all wrong. And I, I think these commissioners, I've been dealing with this playoff thing for a long time, and some these ideas get in the head of college sports, and nobody thinks outside the box. Yeah. Nobody can even conception. If I gave that thing I just gave about how a name, image, and likeness will, will actually level the playing field, literally every commissioner and most of the ADs in America's head would explode like, wait, what? But it makes total sense. They can't yeah. think of anything else. Larry Scott... If you're the Pac-12, you need to get in the playoff. You have not been in the playoff for four years, and your recruiting is suffering because of it. Clemson and Alabama are walking into California and taking all your players because the kids want to play in the playoff. Why wouldn't they? They don't want to play in the Rose Bowl. 17 years old, you don't care about the Rose Bowl. You won't play, in the, you won't play. Alabama. You want to either play for Alabama or you play against Alabama in the playoff. And so the Pac-12, just like the Big 12 should have, should be doing really, the big ten, too, they want a few years without. you need to be demanding, I need a representative in every year. Let's go to eight. let's go to automatic bids. Let's do this thing right. Let's give my teams a fighting chance. And now, if you're sitting there saying, hey, Oregon's in the in the playoffs, well, that's going to help Oregons recruiting. Maybe it's Washington, Maybe it's Utah, Maybe it's SC that you're going to get. At least you're in the conversation. Right now you are ignored. M- most years, the pac twelve is knocked out by October. Nobody cares about your games. Nobody cares about your conference championship game. You have seeded the entire thing and you can see it in the recruiting. This was extremely, pro- I've been arguing this forever and yet they get there and go, well, that's that, that, that's not how it works. Or well, I got to care about the, the Rose bowl or this thing or this tradition. You, it, these conference commissioners can destroy their league by being hard headed. And I don't know how you aren't screaming and going, we need to do this. Uh, but Here they are. I mean, this is why we have a playoff this year. Think about this playoff. They're playing games on the twenty eighth of December and then January thirteenth. Yeah, it's crazy. All because these commissioners want to protect bowl games. Can you imagine Roger Goodell? Imagine you and I, Clay, go to Roger Goodell. We say, Hey, Roger, you know how you play that AFC Championship game up in Foxborough almost every year? How about you let us run the game? We'll move it to San Antonio and you got to play it at, a, at not on that Sunday afternoon where you get all that perfect thing, but let's play it on uh, two weeks early, you know, and, and we get the money and control the TV thing. What do you think? But we'll give you a, a check and I'll buy you golf. Like, you get thrown out of the NFL offices out the window. Like, you don't give this stuff up, but college football outsources its postseason. The most valuable thing in all of college athletics is given away to these guys' cronies because – well, we always gave it away, and we can't mess with that. I'd rather my Pac-12 stink and never compete for a national championship before I stop the gravy train of giving the of giving this thing away. It's completely nuts, but this is what we have.
3: It's really well said that they they refuse to think outside the box because, and, and I don't know. Do you think that's just college athletics in general? Because maybe it's more of sort of a uh, you know like. A lot of industries get disrupted, right? And they get disrupted and the way that they get disrupted is somebody has an idea that's totally outside the universe of what has happened so far. I'll give you an example. And you know, there are tons of them. But you know, Uber decides, hey, you know what? Instead of having to call a cab and sit around right. and wait, you know, for twenty-five minutes outside of your house, why don't we take advantage of these phones that everybody's got in their pocket now? And set our own network of drivers up where you can pick up a car anywhere. You can get picked up almost instantaneously. It's cheaper than a cab, it's more efficient and boom, suddenly the, the the cab industry is in real trouble because they've got legitimate competition. Is it just that college is in this weird sort of hybrid space where it's kind of a business and it's kind of not a business, and so you end up with guys in control who aren't boat rockers, so to speak? They're not disruptors, and so they just are more likely to continue with the way things have been because that's the way that promotions typically occur in that universe? I've thought about this a lot.
1: They're generally... Bureaucrats, or, or they started as like an assistant director of tickets somewhere and moved their way up. If you look at these resumes, so they've always been in the system. They're not outside businessmen. And then basically, you're a commissioner, you're an AD, you're making million a million dollars a year, multi millions of dollars. Shut up and just keep the gravy train going. You don't care. You don't think. You don't have to think. It just works. I, I'll give you an example. When I did uh, the book Death to the BCS, yes, I analyzed the playoff. I mean, I was I knew everything about the playoff and. The, one of the talking points that these the commissioners and some of these ads would say is, if we even go to a four team playoff, all the bowls will shut down because no one will pay attention. They'll all close. And I sat down with uh, with with a conference commissioner once and I said, well, look, it, this is how a bowl game works. So you can get Freedom of Information Act on some of these things. Are kind of quads. They're public. There's right. Here's Your the book, finding. by the this way, was works.
3: was instrumental for people who are listening out there and they're like, I like the college football playoff. I think you had more to do with a college football playoff emerging. Than anyone, certainly in the universe of media and, uh, and, and, and public affairs, and maybe more than almost anybody other than a couple of the conference commissioners who finally made it happen in terms of what you guys, the work you did on Death to the BCS.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I wish they had designed a, a real playoff, not what we, the quasi we kind of have, but it's better than nothing. Imagine this year we'd have like Ohio State or Clemson be sitting out. Like, imagine this, imagine the old BCS. This is what people liked. Yeah. Like you couldn't see this coming. Like we would have three undefeated. And I'm sorry. Sorry, Ohio State. Sorry, Columbus, You don't get to play. Um, I, I'm on a 28 game win streak. I'm the defending national champ, so I don't get in. That's how this is what these people wanted until we dragged them. But the, the narrative was the Bulls will die. The Bowls will die. They said it a million times. I go, look at, look at how a bowl game works. This is the business of a bowl game. This is where they make their money, mainly from the schools giving them money because they buy empty seats at stadiums. I show the whole thing. Basically, every bowl is a welfare case. I show the business, I go, these bowls aren't going to close. And I literally said, if this playoff goes and anyone wants to close their bowl, I will buy the bowl because the bowls print money. It's, it's a guarantee. The schools prop up the bowls. Every single person I showed that thing was like, what? Now, back then there were 30 bowls, okay? Back when his argument, there was probably 33 five years ago. There's now 40 bowls, okay? The bowl games are going under. More of them are being created. Because you can't lose money on them. But you had commissioner after commissioner, athletic director, every single big name in all of college athletics were doing business with bowls, preventing a playoff, and none of them knew how a bowl game actually made its money. None of them even could figure out that, no, they're never going under. And so it, I was like, I can't believe you've never looked into this. You are giving away your product and you don't even know where it's going. And again, Imagine telling the NFL,
0: I'm
1: going to run the Super Bowl. I'm going to run the AFC and NFC championship games. It, it, it's like farcical to even contemplate them even thinking. You'd be like, what? Why, would they, why wouldn't the NFL run the Super Bowl? Of course. College football doesn't own its own playoff. The games that are the most popular, that make the most money, they sit there and go, oh, we got to make sure uh, – you know, the guys down in the world, the Sugar Bowl, get there, they get their cut. We've got to make sure the Chick-fil-A Bowl guys, they get their cut. Why? Who are they? But this, the NCA doesn't run that. The NCAA runs the uh, men's basketball tournament. You can hate the NCA as much as you want. One thing they're really good at, running playoffs. They do it in every other sport. It's terrific. NCAA is dramatic, whether it's the College World Series or the softball, you know, every single one. They don't do this because they won't let their buddies get out. It's it, it, It's the most you know, incredibly mismanaged thing. And when you listen to a guy like Larry Scott basically say, I care more about the tradition of the Rose Bowl than the competitiveness of my own league, which is what you would think a commissioner would care about, you just go, I don't know what to do with these people.
3: Outstanding stuff as always. He's Dan Wetzel. Go follow him on Twitter at Dan Wetzel. Appreciate you coming on, my man. We'll talk
0: to you again soon. All right. Take care. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app.
3: I got a clip that I want to play for you guys here shortly. Um, and it's Emmett Smith reacting to his son's decision to sign with Stanford instead of going with the Florida Gators, which is where Emmett Smith went for his college career and it's interesting I think uh, and I want you to listen to it because obviously the early signing day period was yesterday and there were a lot of these hat ceremonies and a lot of opportunities for high school kids to have their moment and announce where they're going go to go play uh, college football and it get a lot of attention and they're a lot of fun and hopefully people don't get too worked up about it and you just heard us talking about this with Dan Wetzel. Most of the time I don't think you learn that much from these uh, ceremonies. But I actually thought Emmett Smith was really impressive. Emmett Smith's wildly successful professional athlete uh, for all you young guys out there uh, the best running back of his generation, the last running back with the Dallas Cowboys to win a Super Bowl with Jerry Jones it's been 25 years now but I'm 40. I grew up watching Emmett Smith. It was a lot of fun to watch him play for the Dallas Cowboys. but Emmett Smith, was asked about how tough it was for his son to make the decision to go to Stanford and as in part of the process to not choose to go play for Florida. And I thought his response here was particularly interesting and, and worthy of emulation by many parents out there who a lot of times I believe, and I think about this all the time for myself as well, we make the mistake of thinking the choices that our kids make are about us as opposed to about them. And one of the challenges, I think, if you are a parent is trying to reconcile when your kid might make a decision that is different than the one that you yourself would choose. And you think, oh, that's an awful decision, or that's not one that's going to make sense in the years ahead. Going to college is a good decision, but where you go to college is a monumentally important decision. Here was Emmett Smith, reacting to his son's decision to go to a great academic school in Stanford and turn down Emmett Smith's alma mater, the University of Florida. Listen, we can all learn from this.
0: I mean, last thing, he obviously did not pick up uh, the hat of your alma mater. I wonder what just the the advice that you gave him was throughout this process, knowing the schools that he was choosing between. You know, I'm gonna take this hat. I'm gonna wear this hat. <laughs> <laughs> but I can wear this hat. He doesn't have to wear this hat. You know, his daddy went here. That doesn't mean that my son has to go there. At the end of the day, my son has his own journey. And it is his journey, not my journey. And for him to do the things that is best for him is what we teach all of our children. To find what is best for you and go make it happen for yourself. And I'm proud of him for standing up and being the man that he is, the man that he will continue to become. And uh, I'm a Gator. He's still a Gator because he's in my family, how and, that's, and, and, and uh, my wife is a Gator because she's in our family. So we're, we're still a family of Gators, but we're supporting not only EJ, we support Schuyler, we support Jasmine, we support Reagan and Elijah. All of our children, no matter
1: where they go, we're going to be parents first, then we can fall in with our kids, fall in second.
3: I mean, how extraordinarily good is that by Emmett Smith? It's easy, I think, if you are a super celebrity like Emmett Smith is to believe that your kids in some way reflect upon you. But what's important, I think, to remember for all parents out there is ultimately you have to allow your child to take the path that fits them best. And Emmett Smith, I'm sure, would have loved for his son to go to Florida and follow in his footsteps, but his son picked Stanford instead. And by the way, I think Stanford is probably the best school in the country to pick if you are interested in getting a phenomenal education and also play incredibly high-level sports, but football in particular. Now, there are others, right? I think Vanderbilt, Duke, Northwestern, those are all private elite academic institutions that play in high-level sporting conferences that you'd be ecstatic for your kids to go to. I'm a Vanderbilt grad. And I've said before, I'd be happy to sign the papers right now for all three of my sons to go to Vanderbilt as well. I think it's a fabulous place. But I just think there's a lot to learn from Emmett Smith's wisdom there in saying he made his choices, but his son deserves to make the choices too. And also his wife there, you can hear in the audio clip also. Just a phenomenal job of, I think, recognizing the bigger picture by Emmett Smith. And a lot of times we talk about athletes not necessarily the the bigger picture from a perspective of being a father that really struck me good for Emmett Smith wanted to give you some positive uh stories from signing day as opposed to just pointing
0: out how awful USC's class was be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m eastern 3 a.m pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app
3: man I think that Dak Prescott story is a big one. And I'm I'm guilty. This is why we have Dr. Chow on by the way. I am guilty of a lot of you. Uh, the, the same thing that a lot of you are guilty of, which is I'm not that well that well uh, versed when it comes to injury situations. And so, and you hear something like, "Oh, he's going to have an MRI." And then you hear Jason Garrett come out and say, "Well, the MRI checked out. Fine." My expectation is, oh, that means that there's no issue whatsoever at all. He should be fine. And the reason why I like to talk to people like Dr. David Chow and follow him on Twitter and bring him on the show is because they have a depth of knowledge that, frankly, you and I do not have. And if you're interested in this Philly-Dallas game, like I am, because it's the biggest game going on this weekend in terms of the winner barring a collapse in the final week of the season, is likely to advance into the playoffs, making this a default playoff game, which you can't say about any other game that's going on this weekend. Every other game that will be taking place this weekend is not guaranteed to likely be effectively a playoff game. right? Whoever wins this game is going to be in. Now, the one exception, the caveat out there, if the Cowboys win, they're in. Okay, It doesn't matter. If the Cowboys lose then there's still the possibility that the Eagles could go and play against the Giants and find a way to lose that game. And some of you out there rolling your eyes, hey, if you've watched the NFC East this year, that wouldn't surprise anybody. But in a game that is relatively even, if Dak Prescott is truly as injured as Dr. David Chow made it sound like he might be, that's a major issue for this game, given the timing. Now, he said, you know, look, this is not something that's going to linger or last forever. But in one-week scenario here, if Dak Prescott's not able to throw the ball accurately at all, everything changes with the Cowboy offense. Now, I know Ezekiel Elliott was good, and so was Tony Pollard, and they ran the ball very well against the Rams. But I don't even think Cowboy fans who are listening to us right now are like, oh, you know, waving their arms up in the air and saying, oh, I feel really confident about how the Cowboys are going to be able to use Ezekiel Elliott this year. Because if you've watched this season with the Dallas Cowboys at all, you know this has been a season that has effectively relied on Dak Prescott's shoulder. And so if Dak Prescott is not going to be healthy, it's a major storyline and a unique one when I feel like we've talked about every other possible angle in sports media and among sports fans as you sit around and get ready for this Eagle game against the Cowboys. This sounds ominous to me. Now, I know it's Thursday morning, and I know we've got practice on Thursday and Friday, and we'll get a better read on exactly how healthy Dak Prescott is, but I bet a lot of you who were listening to this show when when we had Dr. Chow on last segment, your ears kind of perked up and your, your eyebrows kind of got raised a little bit because he didn't make it sound like Dak Prescott was going to be anywhere near 100% this weekend. And in a game that is likely to come down to I think a defense making a play somewhere. There's not going to be a lot of offensive pyrotechnics, I don't believe, in this game. And the Eagles are out there looking for revenge after they were embarrassed back in October when they went on the road in Dallas. This makes me lean Eagles in a pretty big way, particularly considering in many shops out there you can get Eagles plus three. And also, if you happen to be in a fantasy football playoff, And maybe a championship game scenario, like some of you might be, if Dak Prescott is your quarterback, it would make me a little bit apprehensive about potentially trotting him out there to be the starter. So this is worth paying attention to, I think, in a big way uh, as we come down the stretch for what is the biggest game of the weekend in the NFL. All right. A lot of people waking up with us on the West Coast right now. Appreciate you guys listening uh, all over LA, 570 AM LA sports uh, out there. A lot of USC Trojan fans, and I know because I'm out in L.A. right now, a lot of you are staring up at the heavens thinking, what in the world has happened to our football program? I'm on the Fox lot a lot. It is filled with huge USC Trojan fans. Fox Sports way over indexes for USC fans. And some of them are listening to this show right now on their way in for an early morning start on Thursday at the Fox Sports studios. And there were a lot of long faces all day long Wednesday on the lot over this performance. I don't think you can underrate it. USC was absolutely atrocious in their recruiting class. And it, to me, is the number one story coming out of signing day yesterday was USC's inability to keep the best players in the state of California even at all. You had Oregon swooping down and stealing some. You had Washington grabbing some. Alabama, Clemson, everybody is recruiting in the state of California because USC's ability to basically build a fence and keep all the best players in has pretty much vanished. And that is a major storyline as we move forward. And in fact, if you think about what SC did from a recruiting perspective, it even had the Matt Leinerts of the world saying, what is going on here that we are managing to put ourselves into this position. And I want to read, and again, I'm not claiming that this is an accurate reflection of every single group out there, but right now, USC, according to the 24-7 Recruiting Index, is after these schools that I don't think very many of you think, oh, that's a big-time playmaking school, Toledo. No offense to Toledo, but I don't think you expect for Toledo to have a better recruiting class than USC. Western Michigan, SMU, Troy, Bowling Green. These are all schools that ranked Rutgers above USC in the recruiting class rankings. Illinois, I mean, East Carolina, Wake Forest, Cincinnati, Baylor, Indiana, Kansas State, Kansas. I mean, these are a collection. Pittsburgh is dunking all over USC in the recruiting class rankings. These are schools that should never be dominating USC. And in particular, if you're out there, we're like, well, how bad is it really? In the Pac-12, USC came in 12th in the Pac-12. They were the worst team recruiting-wise in the entirety of the Pac-12. Now, USC people can say, well, we still have some opportunities to go out and make some difference. We can add some playmakers. There's a later recruiting period. We didn't know if Clay Helton was going to be committed. I mean, this is an unmitigated disaster for USC athletics. I don't think there's any way to put a bow on this in any kind of happy way. And my boy, Matt Leinert, uh, who is another Fox guy, tweeted, Oregon is the new USC in recruiting on the West Coast. Back in my day, no one dared to recruit recruit Southern California. Now it's open season and Oregon is hunting. And by the way, it ain't just Oregon that is out there hunting. Uh, All right, I appreciate all of you. Thank you for hanging out with us on the Thursday edition of the show. We'll be back tomorrow, one more day in california for me then i'll be back for the holidays back home in nashville good time out here in la lots of fun with the lock it in staff appreciate all of you hanging out with us we will be live tomorrow ready to roll as we always are with the outkick program as we head into the final weekend before the start officially of the holiday season hope all of you have a great thursday wherever you are and if you're a usc trojan fan i'm sorry this is as bad as it gets, at least from a recruiting perspective. But at least you got Clay Helton locked up for another couple of years. I'm sorry, that was cruel too. This is OutKick. Uh, appreciate all of you hanging out with us. Encourage you to go download the podcast. Make sure you don't miss. I appreciate all of you. This has been OutKick the
0: Coverage on Fox Sports Radio. Be sure to catch live editions of OutKick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Oh, oh, oh.